immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Immersive Audio Podcast with me, host Oliver Cadell and Bjorn Jacobson. Hey everybody and welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is Asbjorn Andersen from A Sound Effect. Yeah, who funny enough is, is almost my neighbor, lives right around the corner. We've never met, but he's he lives just around the corner. I should go say hi someday. <laughs> yes, you should. Um, I've never had two Danes the entire two Danes on the uh, same episode at the same time. <laughs> you will hear an interview with Asbjorn in a moment, but first, let's talk about the latest news. Last week, I attended the EBU webinar session on immersive and interactive sound featuring Fraunhofer. So the webinar was entirely focused on the global rollout of MPEG-H and audio definition model metadata as well as the changes of digital infrastructure associated with that. There was a short demo of MPEG-H offering plugin suite, where a demonstrator programmed additional advanced user interactivity in a form of audio description for visually impaired people. So what is this whole business about MPEG-H? Um, so I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from their own website. With MPEG-H audio, listeners can interact with the audio elements and choose from different languages and commentators or even change the position of audio objects. The configuration of user interactivity is always under the full control of the content creator. The MPEG-H audio system is designed to work in streaming systems as well as in existing and future broadcast systems from contribution to emission in numerous trials around the globe broadcast specialists experience the easy integration into the existing workflows. So it's not quite the universal standard yet. And it's, uh, it's very much not the case in some regions and some industries. At the same time, it have been globally tried by many countries and in different contexts. So it's definitely gaining momentum. Um, let's talk about the entire plugin suite. It's completely free, so that's amazing. You can work within DAW, including Pro Tools, Nuendo, and Reaper. So obviously it's covering all the, the major DAWs that uh, people use in industry. Or, or you can work with existing stems within the standalone version by configuring the metadata. So there are several core components, MPEG-H offering plugin, MPEG-H offering tool, MPEG-H conversion tool, and MPEG-H production format player. So just briefly, um, in case for those who haven't come across all this like object-based metadata stuff, the audio definition model, ADM, essentially defines an open metadata format for production exchange and archiving of next generation audio. So content in file-based workflows. Its comprehensive metadata syntax allows describing many types of audio content, including channel, object, and scene-based representations of immersive and interactive audio experiences. So it's a big deal. The way immersive audio is going to be created uh, using this standard, if you will, uh, will differ substantially from how we used to experience 
these things. And, and essentially, it's not always about immersion from spatial audio standpoint. It's also about convenience, about customization, and uh, kind of interactivity with the content. There's this n- number of components that makes the user experience more enhanced and um, more accessible in many ways. So this really marks the significant shift in how immersive audio is produced and consumed across a plethora of media types and hardware solutions. So definitely keep your eyes and ears peeled on how it develops further in the future. At this point, I should mention that the recording of the webinar is actually available on EBU website. And so if you want to check out the full presentation, please do. It's very interesting. And uh, we'll make sure to add the relevant links in the podcast show notes. But listeners, uh, what do you think? Have you got any experience working with these tools? What's your opinion? How is it going to impact your workflow, uh, your production practices? Get in touch, podcast at 1600digital.com or Twitter. Okay, well, our hot topic today is the role of sound designer in the world of AAA game development, which sounds like a mouthful, and it is. There's a lot to talk about. And um, we just wanted to go through the core components from sound standpoint and just explore what are the important elements uh, when it comes to considering overall concept of sound design for a modern game development. So over to you, Bjorn. Um, why don't you give us an overview from your perspective? Whenever you actually join a, a big AAA project, uh, that could be could be the first thing you do, and it could also be after a long period where you've worked on indie games or you've been striving to get to that point in your career. It can be a bit of a, a mouthful to swallow that you join a company where all this is very, not necessarily well-planned, but you um, you are forced to working in this in this big grinding machine you know when when companies start with let's say two people in a bedroom that makes a small game when that grows and it becomes maybe 10 people in a small office and so on once you reach a certain number of people and it grows then it stops being you know a small family and it becomes a company where not everybody knows everybody. And you have to understand that that uh, that when you work in AAA, I know, of course, it's never just fun and games to work in games. But when you work for AAA companies, it's very rarely fun and games in that regard because work is quite straightforward. It's very professional and so on. And they may have all sorts of things that helps you out. Uh, or, or gimmicky things, or game rooms, or whatever. That 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 is that is to some extent true, and and that they they try to encourage you like that. But AAA is is a well oiled machine that just goes forward. And suddenly, when you join AAA, your opinion or ways of working is is not necessarily the way forward. I've seen a lot of sound designers that join AAA companies who then refuse to work in Pro Tools because that's what the company use or Cubase or whatever they use. Uh, it doesn't matter. But who refuse to use the tools that the company provides because they only work in something else. And I know that this is a big discussion in regards to what can be used, Reaper or whatnot. Uh, I myself use Cubase, but if the company isn't providing me with a license of Cubase, I am the one who has to adapt. It's not the other way around. Um, it's like you have, you have to get used to their system and you just have to deal with it when you join AAA. Uh, as much as you have to when you join Indie, but when you join an Indie, it's more about probably what tools do you have and what do you prefer to work with, but 
if you join the well-oiled machine, you just have to adapt. I've seen it happen before where people come from their own little bedroom and they have an idea of how they want to make sounds. And they've made all these cool uh, cool portfolios and, and cool little reels and so on where, they, where they've showed lots of cool things. But then when they join the production, they're quite surprised that how much energy actually goes into you will now spend six months or a year working on only locomotion of this character walking, which can seem a bit tedious to some, but that is the thing that when you join an, a company like that, th this is, this is a craft. This is, this is craftsmanship at an office. And, and it's, and it's, it's, it may be fun to work there, but a lot of people die because they, they literally don't understand what the job is actually about. And I've seen it happen uh, many times, both in, in all parts of the game industry, really. And I do, not just in sound design. <laughs> so when you work for AAA, especially if you work in, in, a, in a company where there is an audio director, and maybe a lot of people hasn't been worked to, used to working with an audio director before, an audio director who has a very, very straightforward opinion about how everything should sound. Um, which isn't necessarily your way of sounding or belief that it should sound. Um, it can be a pretty big mouthful for a lot of people when, when they join a company like that to realize that they have to adapt to um, the sound design that someone else wants. And maybe you are used to creating uh, greater concepts of, of massively overproduced soundscapes in your reel and stuff like that. But whenever you work in... In AAA, it's really it's really important to understand that, that creating like, tiny footsteps or or working for a very long time on tagging animations or tagging things where literally where you you're not hearing a single sound for a long time is is also a thing. So working in sound design is is more than just having fun at the studio, and that's one of the core elements that that especially for a triple A game, there is so much tagging and setup and technicalities that are taking place. And with modern sound designers these days where implementation is expected as a value that that the sound designer can do, then on triple A projects it's it's a really big part of, of the of the job in general. In 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 bigger triple A productions, um, the the departments can vary from many, many different sizes. Um, some companies like Bethesda until just a couple of years back, uh, Skyrim was just like almost one guy. And, um, and you can also work in, in, in other companies where the sound design department is, is 10, 20 people. Um, and, and the, the skills vary a lot because it really depends on the sound designers. They can be super specialized in one thing, but usually the really specialized people are the ones who's been in the industry for a while and found out that they're really they can they can contribute in a very specific topic. But in a in a general setup, there would be some sort of audio director or an audio lead that would lead the project towards where it's supposed to go and what it's supposed to sound like. But then you could have both sound designers, both the creative ones and the technical ones. You can also have one that sort of like melts in between the two. Um, you have composers, audio programmers. But sometimes you also have links directly to game design. Like, is, is there a, if, if you're lucky to have that, if you have game designers that care about audio, then maybe there is a link to how can we gamify the audio and so on. Uh, some of the core values of, of any sound designer is um, 
is people skills. I mean, sure, it's nice to work alone and work with um, work from home and so on, but it's really important that you have a little bit of all the skills. I mean, it, it's rare to have a sound designer who doesn't like music or doesn't understand how music is made just in a very, very basic way. So everybody has a little bit of everything when you join an audio design department, I would say. Let's talk about a recent release of Cyberpunk, and that was a big title that made a lot of noise just before and after Christmas. And uh, I know that you've been involved with that. So what's the structure, what is the workflow, and just stuff in general uh, when it comes to working for a title like Cyberpunk, for example? Of, of course, I can't I can't speak officially on behalf of CD Projekt Red, but, but let's say uh, CD Projekt Red is like a, a well-oiled machine uh, to some extent where... where you know, when when I joined the project, it was already in production and and so on. And and then you you sort of come in with your expertise in your area. And and at that time, I had just um, done a lot of of locomotion for Hitman. So naturally, I was asked, so what can we what can we do with locomotion and so on? Um, which means that that we all had our areas of expertise. Some were really good with making robotic sounds, and then they sit and do that. And then others were really good with just general ambience and technical setups and so on. But one of the the funny things with um, with CD Projekt Red is that there there was no audio director uh, and basically no 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 lead because the department functioned so so well without and was able to communicate. And that's where where people skills come in in general. Like if, if you have good people skills and are able to communicate freely between everybody who works in a department, then it is actually possible to not like micromanage and have a person that looks over everybody's shoulder all the time when they deliver anything. And I think with a company like, like CD Projekt Red or any other big company, it's it's a fine line between that because either you have to like really hardcore producer keep an eye on what people are doing or you you let people go nuts in their little area or a mix of the two but when you work for a big company like CD Projekt Red then it's 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 a big production and you have to understand that that I'm or like when I join you're just a cog in the wheel and and your opinion might count for something but it's not it's not like you're working on an indie project with two other people where where you are the one who knows anything about audio no you you join a team where everybody respects each other um which means that 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 can be a big mouthful for some if if you're wor- used to working alone a lot which a lot of sound designers are before they join a company like that but yeah working on a big production like that is is really interesting and I really enjoyed it I had some family reasons uh, and other things to leave the company, but so I didn't finish Cyberpunk. I just worked on it in the beginning. Um, but it's really interesting to join these big companies because it works very differently from company to company in regards to how people are, um, the mentality of, of the company as a whole, not speaking of, of CD Projekt Red as such right now, but in, in some companies, there's no social activities after work. And in other companies, it's literally all there is, like one giant social activity and everybody's having a blast next to the computer. So it, it can be very different. So sometimes when you've been in the industry for a while, changing from one office to the other isn't always super dandy because if you're used to 
the social office and then you join a company that isn't very social, then it could be a really big, big change. Uh, and, and you happen to be involved with one of the very early VR games that was available on Oculus platform, Eve Valkyrie, in collaboration with Oculus. Can you tell us more, a little bit about that? When uh, Oculus Rift had just been announced and so on, and we, we were just a bunch of guys. This is basically how, how a video game can come to life. Um, a bunch of guys over lunch at uh, the CCP, CCP Games in Reykjavik up in Iceland. We were sitting there and we were just discussing Oculus Rift and other people were mentioning that, that this was really cool in VR. And personally, I wasn't into it. I didn't was like, just, okay, what is Oculus Rift? And apparently it was this new thing on Kickstarter. It's a VR glasses, you could use it and so on. And I remember the guys, they got a hold of some glasses. They asked uh, CCP to sponsor the Kickstarter so that we could get some glasses so that we could work on a game just something at that point. And then I I guess it I don't know how much money CCP threw after that Kickstarter, but I also know that that Oculus got pretty excited about it. So they actually sent us a uh, several more goggles than we actually originally asked for. Um so suddenly we were actually able to develop a multiplayer game of sorts in VR. And this is this is like a month and a half before uh, before the annual uh, Eve Fan Fest up in Reykjavik for Eve Online mainly, but we started working on this game, and they already some of the guys already had an idea, and of course I was just quote unquote the sound designer, so I didn't have much to say in about how the game should be, but they needed a sound designer, and at CCP they had this rule that if you had a great project, you could work at, a day a week in uh, during work hours on a project, and we started working. Just on this project, we worked on it for about a month and came up with a with a fully playable VR demo that we could then play. And it was pretty fun to work on. We showed it at eFanFest and all the fans went pretty crazy about it. We had a 10, 10 player, five versus five um, VR battle. And just to like put this into, into perspective that I know a lot of VR games have come out and some with more success than others. Evacuary, maybe not the best selling VR game of all time, but nonetheless, when this was done, most people had not seen VR before. Um, so when we showed this at E FanFest, it was agreed that maybe we should go to E3 and show this. And at E3, everybody was kind of like blown away by it. Uh, and, and at that time, we basically just had a game called Eve VR, uh, which was just a demo of the game. And it, it won awards for best tech and best game, most promising design and all sorts of stuff. Um, and then we went home and CCP told us that we're making this into a game and it will become Eve Valkyrie. And the idea basically took off from there. So this is, this is a fully produced AAA video game, AA-ish, AAA video game produced by a team of, of people from an idea that spawned over lunch and developed just the prototype was developed in a month. And that's how fast it can go. It was really interesting to start working in VR. But that, that resulted in that at the time when this was announced and when this was out, then I'm sure other people were working on this. But officially, this was one of the first announced games for Oculus. So I was technically the only sound designer on the planet with VR experience, basically. So I had people from Sony, people from big companies call 
and ask like what my thoughts were on VR audio. And actually, I I had didn't have much to say. Like I might have a lot of ideas, but it wasn't like I had years of experience uh, compared to others. I had just this long, just a couple of months of working with it experience. But it was pretty fun, and it can quickly take off when new products like that come into market. From my perspective, I'm I'm quite curious to talk to you about the evolution of immersive audio applications and usage within big titles today, like linear versus interactive versus spatial. Um, I know you've been working in the game industry for a, a good part of decade and a half or so, and you must have seen some big shifts and changes. So can you share your experience and kind of what you've noticed, how things were and how things are today? What are the biggest changes that are happening today in relation to spatial audio? I think that, that the fact that we're getting more computer power and more space is, of course, a thing. But one thing to have in mind is that that as much as I bump into issues with um with uh, let's say memory space and and hard drive space and all that today that i i might be a 15 15 vet 15 year veteran in in the, in the video game industry but i've just missed out on uh, making games for the ps2 and uh, when you worked on ps2 the the limits between ps2 and ps3 are are considerably uh very very high a very low amount of memory available on the PS2. Uh, not so much on the PS3 because the, the the change was pretty substantial. So I think the ability to create more immersive audio is increasing by, of course, the skill, the the sheer talent of the of the talent pool that is joining the video game industry. But the whole technology around how to make video games is also making games closer and closer to um, sound designing more realistically. I'm not saying that the game necessarily sounds realistic, but it's becoming more and more uh, of a thing to try and create the fully immersive soundscape, which wasn't necessarily possible just 10, 20 years ago. Back in 2000, when there were so many limitations, sure, you could make immersive experiences, but... At that point, you had to focus a lot more on your limitations than you do today. I think the fact also that the computers have gotten faster and so on, but the tools that we work in has made sound design easier. Not to sound like an old man saying that, oh, you young people have it easier than I had back when I was a kid, but 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 it is easier and you have to you have to embrace that. You have to embrace the tools that are there. You know, and when, when whenever you fire off um uh, new software that you've just gotten your hands on. You really have to appreciate that the fact that you can just hit one key and out comes pretty decent sound is a big deal. Because when I was a kid, it was all you know MIDI and you couldn't couldn't do anything and you didn't have access to YouTube and so on. So the the newer generations that are joining the video game industry are far better prepared for what's coming than uh, than I or others back then was. Video game audio production has has also like followed you know, followed the times. Uh, I know that that surround sound for for motion picture has been a thing for for a very long time, but for video games it requires so much computer power that it's it's that's kind of like almost a new thing uh, where you have audio engines that can automatically calculate five point one, seven point one, or Dolby Atmos and so on. Um, and it's not that long ago that, that video games was, uh, I mean, by not long ago, when I was a kid, which is like 30 years ago, 
it was all mono and and you know one beep at a time and that it was still possible just with beeps and tiny noises to create an immersive soundscape um and now today it's grown so suddenly there's mono there's there's live samples there's stereo which grows and suddenly you have 5.1 and so on which isn't necessarily making it easier to create uh, immersive audio but from a sound performance perspective uh, then it becomes more real it becomes bigger it becomes a bigger a bigger experience for the player so so now it's not the technical stuff that's holding people back now it's more the creativity that is required to make things sound extremely awesome because now the limitations are almost gone we're we're not there yet it's not like we have unlimited power but it's still growing and someday i hope that we will have everything will be hd and everybody will have quality speakers at home which won't happen but i hope so one day thanks bjorn for sharing our guest today is Asbjorn Andersen. He's the founder of a sound effect, a soundeffect.com, the world's largest site for independent sound effects. And he's also the co-founder of soundlister.com that some of you might be members already, uh, featuring portfolios of thousands of audio professionals from around the world. Along with his team, he also runs the audio jobs newsletter and audio groups on Facebook and LinkedIn. Asbjorn, welcome. Hi, Oliver. Thanks a lot for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Where did you grow up and how did you get into the audio industry? I grew up in a, a town called Aarhus in Denmark. And then around in my early 20s, I moved to Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark. I started out way back in the 90s in the demo scene days. And I composed in something called a tracker that some of you might be familiar with. It's like composing in a spreadsheet sort of. Quite interesting, but it was a lot of fun. So that's where I got my start. And then um, after I moved to Copenhagen, I got my first game audio opportunity and I was just blown away that somebody would actually pay me money for making music. That was quite fascinating. Um, and that got me started there. And I slowly built a career doing um, sound for games, a lot of kids' games. And then later I moved into uh, mobile audio, doing the built-in ringtones that you find in your, your mobile phones. Did a lot of work with the audio team at Nokia for a number of years. That was a lot of fun, and that just blew my mind how many places these ringtones could be heard around the world. And then after that, um, continued composing for several other mobile manufacturers around the world. I'm curious, what led you to the idea of launching a sound effect platform? Can you share a little bit about how the platform actually works from both sides? So the idea for a sound effect came to me back in 2013. When I noticed that there were so many great libraries being released by independent sound effect creators, I wanted to share all these great releases with my colleague David, who's a sound designer here in Epic Sound, where I also work. And I told him just to, to sort of check it out and take a listen to what they were doing. And he said, yeah, I'd be happy to. So where can I hear all these amazing libraries? I sent him over to Designing Sound, where they had like a huge list of just company names. And I said, yeah, I can just check these out. And there are like 50 just names with no descriptions of what you could actually find when you click those company names or anything like that. And he said, yeah, okay, that's, <clears throat> okay, I'll do that someday, sort of. And, you know, I could just tell that there was a disconnect between all this great stuff that was being released by the, the community and the difficulty you actually had in finding this excellent stuff. 
And it so happened that my wife went traveling for three weeks, and I had to do something during these three weeks. I decided to sit down and try to build something that would help make these libraries visible to everybody in the community, because there wasn't really a way to find them. First, I thought about doing like a wiki kind of thing where each sound creator could go in and add their own info. But then I came across this WooCommerce thing, which um, it was sort of an e-commerce platform, but I just figured it would work as a catalog to really showcase what was out there. So I um, added a lot of libraries and uh, asked everybody to allow me to share the libraries if they were okay with that. And um, thankfully, the vast majority were. And so what happened when you browsed that page, if you clicked buy library, you were sort of taken to the individual soundfair creator's own page. And um, I did that for a while. And at the same time, I figured it could be great to do something for the community as well in terms of not just libraries, but also interesting stories and some behind-the-scenes stuff and things like that. So the effect blog was also formed at that time. I think it was after six months, I figured this is going quite well. There's a lot of people coming in. You know, I still hadn't fixed the core issue that it was very fragmented in a way. You'd still have to go into each soundfair creator's own site and buy libraries, and you couldn't do a bulk purchase where you bought a lot of libraries from a lot of different soundfair creators. So why not simply offer all of these libraries from one source so you can get a lot more in one go and you don't have to set up 10 different purchases on 10 different sites. So again, I reached out to the sound effect creators and they were really um, supportive of this idea because they could see that having all this in one catalog really brought them some traffic that they weren't seeing before. So they could see where I was going with this. And then I set up a marketplace where sound effect creators could uh, add their own libraries and, and sell them through a sound effect. And that's basically where it's grown from. My core approach has been to give people a lot of freedom in the way they present the material and in terms of pricing, etc. So I'm taking a hands-off approach when it comes to the actual content. Of course, I have some requirements on what should be up there, but at the same time, I don't want to be sort of a mean, evil dictator <laughs> deciding what people should be creating. I think this is, this is for the community to decide. But of course, I'll be happy to nudge them along the way and say, listen, maybe you shouldn't do another horror library. Just do a bit of research and stuff like that to see what's out there. For sound effect users, it's a place where you can find a huge number of sound effect libraries from a huge number of sound effect creators. And there's just so much content. And I guess the core idea of the site is that you don't have to buy this one giant package or you don't have to sign up for subscriptions or stuff like that if you don't feel like doing it. You can simply get libraries as you go along and buy what you need when you need it instead of having to do a huge purchase off the bat or paying ongoing fees for something you're not really using. So that's been the core idea that to really offer all this fantastic, diverse stuff from the community. And of course, over the years, the amount of content and the, the quality of the content has just grown massively. So I would dare to say that if you want the freshest content in terms of sound effects, you don't want something that's sort of old and stale, <laughs> then getting sounds from the independent sound community is a fantastic place to start because there is so much great stuff and it's just... I mean, it's new stuff coming out on a daily basis, created by enthusiasts, and it's really created to very high standards. I'm very excited about the independent sound community. I think the combined force of all these great sound designers and recordists is just astonishing, really. Well, nowadays, it's a lot more than just SFX Library Marketplace. Um, you've created a blog, a podcast, a professional network. Can you talk about these separate components in more detail. So the idea with the blog on a sound effect was to really offer some more beyond just being a marketplace because the marketplace wasn't the goal in itself. It was basically to build a community site. 
So the blog really is a place where you find a lot of stories about sound for games, sound for film, tutorials and the sort of how-tos and yeah, everything in between. But another big part of the equation of making a living and succeeding in sound is to find jobs, of course. Everybody needs work. And it's also being able to showcase your skills and show others what you're capable of and allowing others to easily find you. And to help with that, uh, I teamed up with a guy called Stavko a couple of years ago to launch a site called Soundlister. The, the reason was kind of the same as with the independent sound effect libraries, that I was finding it really hard to actually get an overview of who was out there in terms of sound. Where could I specifically find sound people and all the different sort of subcategories within the audio pro community in terms of skills? There was really something missing, a sort of a good overview of who we are as a community. I think we're now at about more than 2,500 profiles of audio pros from all over the world in all sorts of job positions or, or skill sets. It's sort of exactly what I wanted when I was looking for other audio pros, a place where you could just go and find people in, say, the US or in Sweden or in Canada or in India. Just who's out there in terms of sound and what do they do? How do I find people who do the same thing as I do? And how can I showcase my own skills and be found within this geographical area or within this sort of certain skills that I have? And that's exactly what Soundlister offers, I think. So this is for people who want to showcase their skills. Another important element is, of course, being able to find jobs. I think the story sort of repeats itself, but I was also finding it quite difficult to get an overview of audio jobs specifically. There were lots of different people posting all over the place. So we did a few blog posts on Soundlister once in a while about, hey, there's an opening over at this company or that company. I started sharing those. And then we decided to be a bit more systematic about it. So we started trawling the internet um, to really find some of these opportunities out there. And Adrienne Kosminski, who's um, been with the site for many years as well, she's really putting in a lot of work to find these openings. And we've gotten to a point where we post these audio jobs recaps every week on Soundlister. Uh, a quick shortcut if you want to find them. It's audiojobs.org. So yeah, every week we post these recaps of the newest openings in the world of sound. And we also have a, a very popular audio jobs newsletter coming out every week. And um, yeah, I formed a, an audio jobs group on Facebook. That's just really taking off. I think we're getting close to 18,000 members now. It's just fantastic. You've recently launched the Audio Podcast Alliance initiative, which we announced uh, on the last episode, which we are very happy to be part of. Can you explain how it works? So for the Audio Podcast Alliance, I sort of took the same approach that I, I took with a lot of the other stuff I've been involved with over the years. And what drove me was I was finding it quite hard to to get an overview of all these podcasts that dealt with sound. Again, that sort of frustrated me, and, and frustration is a great driver for me for some reason. So I decided, why not do a community for those of us who do podcasts about sound? Because I think it would help us do better podcasts. And it would also make it a lot easier for the listeners to actually find these great podcasts about sound. So that's pretty much exactly what the Audio Podcast Alliance is all about. We also share some some greetings between the podcasts. So, for example, the Tom Bennis might share a greeting from, from the Sound Effect podcast where we say what's in our latest episode and vice versa. So people can get an idea of what others are doing in the sound community and what they might want to listen to next once they finish whatever episode they're listening to. So I'm just really excited about it. And I think there's a great energy 
between all of us who do these uh, podcasts about sound. So I'm I'm really excited to see that uh, the enthusiasm that goes into both creating them and just lifting each other up in this as well. Do you see immersive audio making its mark on sound effect libraries? And if yes, uh, mainly in what way? Is there anything community can do to contribute to these changes? Or are there any gaps in the market? When it comes to immersive audio, a sound effect is home to what I think is the largest collection of Ambisonics uh, sound effect libraries. And there are quite a few um, surround libraries there as well. In terms of sales, it's not the biggest category, but there's definitely some interest there. So if somebody's out there in the community who have the the skills and the equipment to record Ambisonics or, or surround libraries in general, I'd say go for it. Of course, always check what's already available in the market because somebody might have had whatever idea you've come up with beforehand. A piece of overall advice would be in general to record in the highest quality that you're able to because you can always you know, downsample and, and render stuff in lower quality. But as long as you, your source material is in the highest quality possible, I think you're in a pretty good place. And in terms of uh, gaps in the market, be sure to have a look at what's already available. And that's probably the, the number one challenge I see for independent sound creators that they forget to check out what's already available and they spend a lot of time and effort and out-of-pocket money um, to do a sound library only to release it into a category that's already pretty crowded. And that's a shame because this makes it a lot harder to actually get some traction on the given library if it's been released into a category where there's already a lot of coverage. So rule number one, do some research, find out what's in the market and what seems to be missing and look at your own surroundings and your network and see what are you able to record. A lot of people are going to be near water, woods, cities and stuff like that. So think about what's normally not accessible. And if you have access to some of that, go for that. And again, record in the highest quality possible because you can always downgrade afterwards. For those who haven't come across any of these resources, what's the best way to join and get involved? I recently sat down to build a list of resources that I figured could come in handy if you want to make it in sound and if you want to make more of your career in sound. And it's uh, at asoundeffect.com forward slash supercharge. And it features 12 resources for things like finding jobs, showcasing your work, finding books about sound, podcasts about sound, all that sort of stuff that can either help you learn more about the craft and the art of sound or the more business-oriented side of your work and your life in sound. So I would recommend hopping onto that and giving that a go. And if you have any more ideas for resources that you would find useful, just leave a comment down at the, at the end of the post and I'll be happy to investigate if it's something that I can help out with. Do you have any advice for others looking to break into the industry today? Jennifer Walton and I did an interview series called the Sound Success Series we talked to a lot of different people who have succeeded within their niche within sound, whether it's documentary sound or trailer sound or recording and stuff like that. So lots of different subcategories within the whole audio professional category. So what we did was we then took all these answers and compiled them into what we call the sound success guide, which is basically, I think it's about 20 audio pros that sort of chime in about 18 different types of audio related jobs and how you do them and how you succeed and where you go. If you want to go in that particular direction, where, where should you start and what sort of resources should you pick up? That's really something I would recommend checking out as one of the first things you do. It can sort of give you a feel for what does this particular job really entail. 
in general, you really have to ensure that you have these multiple revenue streams coming in. Personally, that's been how I've managed to make a living in, in sound for many years, and I would really recommend doing that as well. Asbjorn, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Bjorn Jacobson. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Emily Reese from the podcast Level with Emily Reese, and I interview people who make audio for games, mostly composers. Our newest episode features composer Gordy Hab about his music for Star Wars Squadrons, which is absolutely outstanding. You can find us at patreon.com slash level and levelwithemily.com. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. My recent guest is production sound mixer Jimmy Seiska, based out of Los Angeles, California. We talk about recording sound on the Bravo series Below Deck Mediterranean and the Amazon series The Pack, hosted by Lindsey Vaughn. Check out the latest episode. Hi, this is Christian from the Sound Effect Podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear Sergio Diaz and Zach Sievers talk about their sound design and mixing work on Gold Lion winning feature film Nomadland. Check it out at soundeffect.com forward slash podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Tim from Tone Menders. In our latest episode, we talk with four-time Oscar winner Richard King. He tells us about the ultra-complicated sound for Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenant. We talk about creating interesting sound design for scenes happening in reverse, how to build cinematic body punches, and his thoughts on the controversy over the film's dialogue mix. Listen wherever you find podcasts or at tonebenderspodcast.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows, and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation, and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch the Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk See you there! In our modern lives, we spend so much time thinking about what things look like that we tend to forget about our incredible sense of hearing. That's where we come in. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. 
In each episode, we chase down the hidden backstory behind a famous sound or sonic phenomenon. We followed sound designer Ben Burt on his hunt for the sound effects of Star Wars. He was hiking and his backpack caught on a, a guy wire that was leading up to a radio tower. And he heard what sounded like a blaster sound. We found out that dinosaurs probably didn't sound anything like Jurassic Park. If we were around when T-Rex was around, we might feel these sounds of the largest dinosaurs more than we would hear them through our ears. We've tracked down the origins of a drum sample that's been used in hundreds of hip-hop and electronic songs. During that time, everybody had drum breaks. And we had been doing songs where Greg would play these drum beats. We've explored the challenges of interplanetary communication. It's pretty amazing to think that I could be on Mars and say, Houston, I have a problem. And it'll be 40 minutes before they get back and say, what's up? And we've revealed how the Netflix audio logo almost included the sound of a goat. For a while, we were stuck on that goat sound. I thought that would be a good time. (laughs) This year on 20,000 Hertz, we'll uncover the origins of even more iconic sounds. Our dog. We'll also hear from a few surprise guests. In this run of Daffy, he's not the greedy money. Ooh, that's mine. Give that to me. We're bringing him back to the, uh, I'm Daffy. You know, Uh, we are all time travelers going one way. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz wherever you get your podcasts. That's 20,000 Hertz spelled out without any numbers. Once you see our swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. And if you're already a fan of the show, tap the share button in your podcast player and post this trailer on Facebook or Twitter, or text it to someone directly who you think would love this show. 